0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at BYTE.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with BYTE. Yeah, it's going to be difficult for me to get through this podcast without calling you
1: Johnny Ray because This fine. is what I call you. <laughs> That's nickname. In Texas, there are three sports uh, football, politics, and spring football. <laughs> but I don't know if I could ever, quote unquote, pay to watch the Chiefs play a game because I've never done it what we do yesterday helps make us who we are today. I think who we are today will help make
0: us what we will be tomorrow. All right, you ready? Let's go. From Fox 4 News in Kansas City, are we rolling? Are we on? Hello? I'm Nick (laughs) Vasos. This is Signal Hill. Today's podcast features a special person who spent 33 years telling stories from Signal Hill and across the United States. A huge fan, not just of sports, but of history. He has encapsulated a brilliant 40-year broadcasting career in a new book entitled One for the Coyotes. Al Wallace sits down with Fox 4's John Holt to relive some of that history and what's ahead for Big Al after working at KC's oldest and most trusted station.
2: So let's start with life after TV. You've been out of here for about six months now, and you and I have seen each other a few times along the way. And man, you look great. too few. You look great. <laughs> well, thank you. And you're still on TV, <laughs> which, is, which is surprising. You, you, uh,
1: since since I left Fox Four uh, in late December, guys, it's almost been seven months. Isn't that something? Um, life's been good. It's been relaxing. A lot of time with the family, a lot of time to travel, a lot of time to uh, reflect and decompress, and uh, plenty of time to write uh, this book, which we're going to talk about uh, during this podcast. But as much as anything, uh, this is how life changes. So I'm driving to the station today. I don't know if I've been, in seven months, I don't know if I've driven up Signal Hill from Southwest Boulevard twice in the last seven months. That was routine for that 33 years. That was a years. daily
2: move, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah,
1: and so I'm driving up today, and I, I pass the quick trip, and the first thing I do, it's instinct. I look at the gas prices. That's the, I would look at the gas price, because I live in Johnson County. This is Jackson County. And I look at the gas price, and then I drive drive up the hill. I drive <laughs> into the parking lot, and instead of taking a left, go, I almost went left to go to the back parking lot, right. but I, I take a right, because I no longer have a key card to get in the building. It's, it's different. So life... Yeah. Overall is just different. And um I knew this day would come one you know, one day, right. twenty years ago, fifteen, ten years ago, knew this day would come or the day that I would no longer work here. Yeah. And um, it's it's came and went, and there's been almost seven months of it, and, and so life is good, especially well, with this new book.
2: One thing you don't have to do is fill up as much, so you don't worry about the gas prices like you, you know used what? to, right? <laughs> um, there, are, there are times where I will go
1: two days without leaving the house. Yeah. And I used to, it was routine, and think about your life and the routines we all have in our lives. And, and you know, most often they deal with transportation and communication, mm-hmm. those things that we just take for granted, that we do day in, day out. And I can go two weeks now without filling up my car with gas because there's sometimes I don't leave the house or I just don't I absolutely don't drive as far as I used to on a daily basis. Are you kidding me? Right. And you try to get all those things done. If you do travel down, if I do have to come downtown for some reason or another, I did some freelance work over the last four or five months with the Kansas City Sports Commission. And I was, uh, you know, glad to be associated with them. And, And so I'd come downtown from time to time, but Two weeks without filling up your car with gas—that's just money
2: saved, especially yes, with these prices up. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> you know, you know. Uh, I remember if I could share something that you and I talked about. I think we were in San Antonio, maybe the last final four you and I covered. And I remember one night, you know, you kind of shutting things down and just talking about life, and you're on the road, and and I remember you saying, "You know, Johnny Ray, I think I see it coming." And I'm like, "What? What are you talking about?" And he says, "You know, I think I see a day coming where I don't do this anymore." And I'm like, really? And and you, I think you still were thinking maybe two, three years out. So it came sooner. But it seemed to me that you were preparing yourself for that mentally and that it is a grind. Our business is a grind. Any job's a grind, right? Especially if you care about it and, I, and work hard. And we're going to talk about that as it relates to the book. But I think you were already starting to see that light at the end of the tunnel.
1: I look at you because you're still in the business now. But I can reflect back on people who used to work here on Signal Hill at WDAF TV, uh, Frank Bowl, Phil Witt, and I have no idea how they went 35, 40 years. I worked here for 33. I right. worked in broadcasting for 40. 40. But, but Phil Witt, you know, for example, was here for like 38 years, and I have no idea how he, I don't know how he, how he did it, and um, if, if I can put this in perspective for a sports guy like myself, um, after the first of the year, not immediately after December 20th, 2018, which was my last day, but, but consider this. There, there are times, there were times working here for 33 years, basically all the time, I felt I was responsible for knowing exactly what every team and or franchise and or school connected with our viewing area, I had to know what they were doing in each of the major sports on a daily basis. And so I had to know, well, why did KU win that game or lose that game? Why did Mizzou schedule that game, win that game, or lose that game? And on college football Saturdays or college football college basketball Saturdays, Chiefs, Royals, Sporting, you, I had to know on a daily basis what they were doing, what they were up to, and I am no longer; those are no longer concerns of mine. If I miss a game, it's no big deal. If I really cared about it, I probably set it on the DVR, and then two days later, if I haven't watched it,
2: that's that's okay. It's it, okay. It's okay. So sports is not a job now; it's more fun, like like sports fans. Um, I don't even know if it's fun. I
1: don't. I don't know if I. <laughs> Uh, my nickname to you for, yeah, it's going to be d- difficult for me to get through this pod- podcast without calling you Johnny Ray. because <laughs> That's, that's just what I call you, the <laughs> nickname. Fine. But I don't know if I could ever, quote unquote, pay to watch the Chiefs play a game because yeah. I've never done it. I don't know if I could pay to ever watch the Royals play play a game because I've never done it. Now, the book, my book, One for the Coyotes, 14 chapters, three chapters deal heavily with Kansas basketball or Lawrence, Kansas, because, and I hope we talk about it, my special connection to Lawrence and to the University of Kansas and that basketball program. Um, But I did, over the 33 years, pay to watch one Royals game and that was Derek Jeter's last game at Kauffman Stadium. Wow. I bought those tickets six months in advance. He's my favorite baseball player in the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. I couldn't make a trip to New York without making my way to a gift shop or something and buying something related to Derek Jeter mm-hmm. for my kids. I was not going to miss his last game or his last uh, visit to Kauffman right. Stadium. And I think right. that was in 2014 13 right. or 14. And um, that was a blast. I bought those tickets, but I I don't know if I...
2: Let's... uh, A good point to jump into the book, Mm -hmm. and in part because it's the foreword of the book, and that is your special relationship with KU Basketball. And then I want to backtrack a little bit to to how you... I think the the story behind writing this book is fascinating as well. In fact, let's start with that. David Smale is your your, your
1: co-author. Ghostwriter,
2: co-author, yes. And... He worked you over time and finally wore you down, didn't he, in terms of writing this book?
1: Yeah. David Smell is a local freelance writer. He lives in Lonexa. He's a K-State grad. um, And he uh, previously worked at the NCAA back late 80s, uh, early 90s. And um, he's written 17 books. This is number 18. And written or been a part of. Mm -hmm. So uh, he's been around the block when it comes to writing a book or getting a book published. And so, yeah, he's he's kind of, he's uh, four or five years ago, uh, we were out at, uh, out at the K waiting on Ned Yost to have Ned to do a press conference. I got to shorten this story up uh, because I've told it and it usually takes about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're waiting and uh, it's about four o'clock. Ned comes out at 430. So we got time to kill. So David tells the story about how he and his wife did indeed attend the 1983 Pine Tar game where George Brett rushes. You know, out of the dugout mm-hmm. in this dispute with the umpire crew at Yankee Stadium in New York and Billy Martin and the whole deal. So David tells this story about attending the Pine Tar game, and then he says that I told – I call that a tall tale, even though it was true, his story. But he says that I told a tall tale, but I don't remember the story that I told. Yeah. But whatever it was, I told it. And then Ned comes out, does his press conference, and as Ned leaves, and we're all packing up to go to our respective places of work – David comes to me and says, hey, you tell a good story. You ought to think about writing a book. And I just, I looked at him like, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> and, and, you know, you should you should write a book. You tell a good story. I bet you have a lot of them. And I said, man, I don't know what you're smoking, but I got to go. And he's mentioned to me over time, over mm-hmm. the last five years, uh, I've seen him from time to time out at the ballpark or a press room or whatever. And he'd say, hey, how about that book? And I'd say, I'm working, I'm busy, you know, and we'd just joke about it. But then after I had made the decision to leave television and to leave WDAF TV, he messaged me on Facebook and said, hey, got time for that book now? And that's the first time that I gave it any type of serious consideration was early December 2018.
2: And one of the first things you did was connect with Coach Self mm. about writing the forward. What is it about Coach Self and your relationship with now? For those who are joining us, Al Wallace, former sports caster here at Fox Four, journalist, storyteller. Uh, you're a Texas Tech grad, mm-hmm. grew up yeah. in Texas, and or spent a, a good part of your life in Texas, uh, and yet you have a special relationship with KU basketball. Um. I,
1: growing up in Texas, uh, and I I say this in the book, uh, one chapter maybe four chapter four. I talk about high school football in Texas. Well, in Texas there are three sports: uh, football, politics, and spring football. And <laughs> and you know you really got to live there. It's like Kansas City barbecue. It's not barbecue here. It's Kansas City barbecue. Right. And you say that in reference to. Memphis barbecue or North Carolina barbecue or any barbecue in the world, it's just better here. And being a native Texan, I'm telling you, the Kansas City barbecue is the best. I love Texas. I love everything about Texas, but it ain't Texas barbecue. Don't rank with Kansas City, <laughs> with barbecue. Kansas City barbecue. Same thing on the high school yeah. football. As far as I'm concerned, sure. um, it's Texas high school football, and it's just it's just a different breed. It's a different animal. It's it's given a tremendous amount of significance. In each and every community that follows and or supports a high school football team. And uh, it has more high school football than any other state in the union. And so with that said, uh, I moved to Kansas City in May of 1985. May 8th was my first day of work here at WDAF-TV. Well, three weeks later, Bill Self starts his uh, career as a coach. He was a a grad assistant under Larry Brown three weeks later. Very few people realize that even before he came or a month before he came, uh, he took the place of a young assistant coach by the name of John Calipari, who met his wife, who was an assistant coach, assistant coach, who was an administrative assistant in the athletic department. Anyway, uh, Bill Self and I basically arrived in this area for the first time at the same time. And of course, you know, I crossed his path maybe once or twice that summer. I'm just getting my feet wet. One of the first trips I made to Lawrence, I did a story on Lynette Woodard. And um, I'd heard of Lynette Woodard. I knew she was a fantastic basketball player, one of the first, uh, or the first female to ever play for the Harlem Globetrotters. But it took me a while, if not two years, to Mm -hmm. understand and realize the significance of Kansas basketball, and that first started when I saw a big eight basketball game at Allen Fieldhouse. I'd never seen college basketball players that talented. I grew up in Texas where football right, was the deal. Right. The old Southwest Conference had a bunch of plow horses trying to, you know, get off a jump shot yeah. and do a backdoor cut. And I just fell in love with what I saw at KU, and at, at uh, uh, Old Ahern in Manhattan as right. well. But then the history started to uh, permeate my coverage, Mm -hmm. uh, my understanding of the game and of the sport and of the people that made it all up. So Bill Self early on, you know, that first year as a grad assistant at KU was really no big deal. It wasn't until later where he became an assistant coach at Oklahoma State, then went on to coach at Oral Roberts in Tulsa, that I would uh, see him from time to time and as, as an Oklahoma State assistant who came to the field house mm-hmm. and then started to follow his career coaching that, that I, I began to see, understand who this guy was and certainly after he got the job at KU. And um, we talked once after he first got the job, about our roots. I mean, we were in the press room. There was no cameras on or anything like that. And, you know, he grew up in Oklahoma City. And I grew up in Mineral Wells, Texas, which is about 90 minutes from, the, I mean, north central Texas, about 90 mm-hmm. m- miles from the uh, Oklahoma-Texas border. And come to find out, lo and behold, that we would spend uh, summer times at the same lake. Like here, where everybody goes down Lake of the Ozarks, sure. Table Rock or sure. wherever. And, but there, it was Possum Kingdom Lake. And if if you know Possum Kingdom Lake in North Central Texas, you don't call it Possum Kingdom; you call it PK. And he said, "You go to PK," and so we kind of connected like that. He's got something, yeah. Yeah, he's a high school kid who went down to PK. Well, so was I. You, you were there too. Yeah, just you know, within years. His best friend, who was a former assistant coach on his staff at uh, at Tulsa and at Illinois, uh, Billy Gillespie. Future Texas Tech head coach, right. former uh, Kentucky head coach, coached at A and M. Billy Gillespie grew up 15 minutes from me in North Central Texas. Well, you know Billy Clyde. Well, Billy Clyde, he grew up in Grayford. You know how self talks. Mm-hmm. He's a country boy at heart. Uh, it just, just little things like that um, that helped connect me with him. And then over the over years and over time, I've grown to know him as a person. Uh, not just as a coach reporter relationship, but we've become friends. We don't, we don't go out and have beers together. No. There's never been time for that, but uh, we've had some we've had yeah. some sit down talks about life and yeah. family and people and and how people connect and how they should, especially the game of basketball, right. and how much he cares about it and the and the young men that he's been able to coach and mentor. That that. Um, that made it easy for me to reach out to him to do the forward to the book, and he was gracious enough to do it yeah. I'm very thankful.
2: And, he, and he, he reflects, and I and I was there when it happened in Omaha when you were unable to cover KU, Sweet 16, Elite 8, two years ago. Um, your sister had passed away. You mm-hmm. had to go back down to Texas, and Coach Self came over and asked JW Edwards, a good mm-hmm. friend of yours and mine, who went traveling. Where's Al? And, you, and he reached out to you. He said, give me his number. I want to reach out to him. And I know you. Uh, there's a very personal side to that man. And, and I think that meant a lot to you as well.
1: It did. Uh, I lost my sister routine back surgery um, two years ago. And it happened all of a sudden. In fact, KU was playing in the regionals, or I should say first and second round mm-hmm. of the NCAA tournament in March 2017 uh, in Wichita. And that was a tough trip for me because I knew she was, you know, things were dicey and she had, you know, things were kind of on the edge. And, and sure enough, she, um, she passed away after some complications out of a, from a routine surgery. And, but, but Coach Self, Bill Self, knew that <laughs> – factor this into my connection with Kansas basketball. The last, the last time I missed a Kansas game in the tournament – that was played outside of Kansas City was in March of 1991. And that was Roy Williams' second year as head coach. They lost to UCLA in Atlanta. I missed that game because I was working at the time in Dallas. I left WDAF for 13 months and went to Dallas and eventually came back. I missed that game. But after that, the next game that I missed was that game the week later in Omaha, when Kansas beat Clemson, I saw every single game mm. save three. Right. And they were all played here in Kansas City. I felt that it was unfair for me to quote unquote go to either Kemper Arena or the Sprint Center knowing that I had to anchor. So I said, I'll anchor. It was a first-round game or yeah. whatever it was. I'll anchor because I know I'll be on the trip, and it was a priority of mine to keep that streak alive. Sure, but he knew that that um, on top of my list of games I want to cover, I got to cover. I you know, or I'd probably pitch a fit. Um, was Kansas basketball? Uh, you can have a Super Bowl, a World Series, or whatever. But I, I loved March, and he knew that, and he knew how much it meant to me. But lo and behold, uh, after he talked to JW and you were covering that game up in Omaha. That, that, that year where Kansas beat Clemson and then beat Duke and Duke. advanced to its most recent uh, Final Four. It's twelve thirty at night, and I get a text from Coach Self, just saying, "Hey, I know you're going through a tough time. Just know that you know your thoughts are with us, and you um, hope to see you in San Antonio." I said, "Hey, I'll, I'll be there in San Antonio. Yeah, you know, and I because I know you will be in
2: San Antonio." And sure enough, they sure made, enough they were they advanced. Um, ironically, in spite of your love for Kansas basketball, it was Kansas football that made a big impact <laughs> on you. Uh, a visit to Lawrence, Kansas, uh, back on a very cold. I think it was the final home game for KU that year, as I recall, against Missouri.
1: 1991, yeah. October 24th, 1991. So um, I go to that game. Um, that wasn't a that that might have been. I'm trying to think. Of, I can't even remember who the head coach was for KU at that time. Oh, it wasn't boy. Glenn
2: Mason at the time. Mm. Was it Mace? Tony Sands was the big record-breaking running. back He was back the running that day, back. It, that's a good question. I'm going to forget wow. about
1: the head coach because yeah. I'll never think about it. But I think that was a Woody Woodenhofer game for Mizzou. And um, Tony Sands runs for 394 yards. That's an NCAA Division One single game rushing record. Kansas wins the game, but that date and that game are more significant for me because that's when I met, I met my wife on the elevator. Yeah, she was an elevator. She was operating the elevator, and I went over that game with Don Proctor, who's been at you know WDAF TV longer than I have. I think he started here in 1983. But anyway, Don Proctor, uh, Mizzou grad, and uh, Lori Calcara, who at the time uh, was a sports intern at WDAF TV, and also currently enrolled at the time, she was enrolled at KU, mm. and she was a part. She was a she was a former because she was interning and she wasn't down on right. the field. She was a crimson girl, crimson girl, okay, yep, dance yep. girl, one of the dance girls, cheerleaders. But anyway, we get on the elevator and we go up, and we get off the elevator. And uh, I, I said specifically to Lori, I said, "Did you notice the girl on the elevator?" And she said, "Yeah, I noticed her, and I noticed you noticed because she said so, saw me staring at this lady on the elevator." Well, sure enough, I probably took about five or six trips up and down that elevator that day for some. I made up reasons. You had to run videotape out to oh, the yeah. truck, right? I mean, I was making up stuff. Oh, I forgot my glove. Uh, you know, Slate November. Oh, I forgot That's my great. water. I forgot this. I forgot that. And so, just as just so often as I could, I, I made my way up and down that elevator, right in the middle of the game or whatever. And um, and I went home that night, and I called my brother, and I said, I met my wife tonight. How, how cool I is that, Marlene, my, I my wife and, and that would be
2: the case. Yes. There's some other today. nuances in that story I don't want to give away, because I think it's it's a great part of the book. I loved reading about yeah. that. Um, <laughs> you know, this book is not just about sports, though, Al. I mean, I, and you and I have talked about that, and I've had a chance to read a good portion of it. Um, there are life lessons here, and it, first of all, you're, you grew up in an Army family, mm-hmm. and a father who expected a lot of his kids. Yeah. Um, how, <laughs> Especially how boys. Did, how did that? Yeah. How did that uh, shape what you would become?
1: I'm not like anyone else. We we all, we all are products of our environment, one way or the other. Uh, there are parts of our environment we didn't like growing up and we rejected, and that helped us. Mm-hmm. There are parts of our environment that we did like and we used and cultivated. Um, you know that, growing up in Great Bend, Kansas. It's, it's part of who you are, what makes you what you are. Mm-hmm. And you appreciate that. And um, there's not many people who um, who grew up in this area or Kansas that don't know that about you and appreciate and love that about you. Mm-hmm. Well, I loved growing up in a military family, uh, and in and, and a large part because of the discipline that was involved. And, you know, we lived around... Um, we lived around the world, basically, mm-hmm. up until the time I was 10. And then we, you know, settled in the place I was born, in Mineral Wells, Texas, north central Texas, right outside of Fort Worth. And But but living around the world at such an early age, for some reason, I, I, I can't pinpoint it, but I just became fascinated with with history and the surroundings. Even that young, I, I just, I promise you, I did. And... Um, in 1962, when we lived in Fort Meade, Maryland, and in October of 62, my dad was a staff sergeant in the in the military, in the Army, and he got called away to Key West because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, I, I remember him, you know, I was just past five years old, mm-hmm. but I remember him leaving. And he was gone for two months. The Cuban Missile Crisis lasted for 10 days, but he was gone for two months. He came back in December, mid-December. Nine months later, my little brother was born. My dad had been gone for two months. I mean, do the math. Yeah. And then uh, during the summer of 63, um, my oldest sister was 14 years old. And I remember this fuss between her and my mom that lasted a week or two. I don't know what was it about. You know, again, I'm five and a half years old. I don't remember what it was about, but come to find out, it was it – was, My sister and my mom would not allow my sister to, with a number of other students at her junior high school, attend the March on Washington where Martin Luther King gave the the I Have a Dream speech. I didn't find that out until later. Mm -hmm. But just being in and around these historical events made me fall in love with history Mm -hmm. and the building blocks that make up history and so much of that uh, is – Living in a military family and living upon the discipline that my father instilled upon us, um, he was a, he was he was a, a hard worker. Uh, he was part of that greatest generation. He served one year in Korea, two years in Vietnam, and um, you know he allowed us a good life because he made a you know he barely graduated high school in North Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina, same hometown as Roy Williams. Mm-hmm. And um, all these things connect, I believe, for a reason, Mm -hmm. for me and my life and those connected to it. And um, that's one reason I started following history and trying to understand why all these things connect and why they are important. I think what we do yesterday helps make us who we are today. I think who we are today will help make us what we will Mm -hmm. be tomorrow. And I I keep a close tab on all of that. So my dad and his his love of discipline and what the discipline he instilled upon us helped make me the person I am today in my life and the lives of my kids, sometimes not as much as I'd like, right, but right. but is is based upon a foundation
2: of discipline and trying to do the right thing. Was that discipline then, you carried that over into your career mm. in, in, in the sports world. Yes. Um, and I saw firsthand how... Disciplined you are or were about production value and telling the story and it's not just the score. There's a story to be told and that you really th- enjoyed that aspect of it, didn't you? I,
1: I really did, and I really do. do yeah. I, um, I just you know there there are some days we all appreciate coming to work more than others. Sometimes we can say some days are more important than others, but are they really? Because rate, anyway, the little things matter everything matters. Everything matters. Mm-hmm. And if you don't believe that, I can just I can give you countless mm-hmm. instances where they do. And um, if, if you don't do the little things, uh, you won't get anywhere close to the big things. Mm-hmm. That's just the way I was brought up. My dad brought us up. Uh, you know, we lived in Germany for three years. And uh, the only colors that mattered were red, white and blue. Of the American flag. And Army Green. And Army Green.
2: You you mentioned that.
1: And that Army Green was the discipline. Yeah. It was just, you know, you get up, you make your bed. And and just little things like that. Just, you know, you do
2: things right every day, all the time, every day. You experienced your first example of discrimination, racism in Germany, right? Isn't that... Well, that's... You you touched on it in the book. Yes, I did. And... um, it was, uh, I'm
1: eight years old, seven, eight years old, and I go to a, um, I joined the Cub Scouts, you know, like every, yeah. every other kid. Yeah. And I go, to a, uh, I go to the Cub Scout meeting. We lived in an apartment building there on the base, because we didn't live, no one really had a home at the, on the base we lived at in Germany, in Darmstadt, Germany. And I'm seven, eight years old, so I go to this, this scout meeting for the first time in a building that's three or four blocks away from my house. And so, you know, I go to the building, I go to the right apartment, and sure enough, there's the Cub Scout meeting. Well, we're sitting there for five minutes, and the den mother, you know, in charge of all the kids, she comes to me and she says, you're in the wrong place. You're not supposed to be here. And she, you know, I had my little form that she turned in on day one and all that kind of stuff, shows you you had your shots Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) And, um, you know and you had your birth certificate or your age to show that you're supposed to be in the scouts or it's okay if you're in the scouts and she says you're not supposed to be here and I said well what what do you mean and she said look this is wrong and this is wrong you're supposed to be in this other group so you're not supposed to be here and I, I accepted that at face value I said okay it's fine so I go home I walk home and I show up on you know a full hour back at home before I was supposed to and so I walk on the door and my mom goes what are you doing here I thought you had scouts and I said, well, this lady showed me that I'm not supposed to be here. I was, I'm in the wrong group. And my mom looked at the deal and she said, no, she's just, she's prejudiced. And my, to me, I just stood there, I was amazed. She used this word I'd never heard before, prejudice. And I was like, well, what's that mean? I'd grown up in the Army where color doesn't matter. Right. I was born, you know, when I was born, Fort Walters, Texas, so I was born into a military family, always lived on a military base. I I didn't know any I'm like, well, what's that mean? She said, Don't worry about it. We'll get you in another scouting group. Don't in the next week I was in another I was in another den, and I was I was fine. Yeah. But that's the first taste I'd had of right. it. I just I didn't understand it because I'd always been taught color doesn't matter. But because we were now living on an American army base in a different mm-hmm. country, you worry about the red, white, and blue and stay away from all the other outside distractions, you know, think about it. For three years, I never got more than 17 miles from home. You lived on the base. You stayed on the base. That's just the way it was, especially, think about it, just 20 years after World War II. Right. That's how old I am, Johnny
0: Holton
1: <laughs> <laughs> We don't have to go there. <laughs> no, but but yeah. uh, that's just some perspective,
2: yeah, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one for the Coyotes, and I must admit that I was struck by that title uh, when I first saw the cover. And then as I read the book now, I get it. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you care to share w- where that comes from and, and how that sort of gives us an umbrella of what this book is about?
1: Um, this takes us back to high school football and Texas high
2: school football. Like Kansas City barbecue, right? Exactly. Yeah.
1: And it is distinct. It is different. Yeah. And uh, you can have your different opinions about it, but to me, it absolutely is. Both. Kansas City Barbecue and Texas High School football. So I grew up in a small town in Texas from the, from the age of 10 on. And uh, even back then, when I was 10 in 1967, um, and I'm in junior high school now, or I'm in elementary school at the time, but by the time I got to junior high school in 1969, the head coach at the high school was Frank Beavers. And uh, he's now a member of the Texas High School Football Hall of Fame. Uh, he coached at Highland Park High School that has a number of of, um, look it up, of famous uh, graduates. Uh, L.A. Dodger pitcher Clayton Kershaw Mm -hmm. went to Highland Park High School. Um, Detroit Lions quarterback Matthew Stafford went to Highland Park High School. All those SMU teams in the late 70s and early 80s uh, had significant uh, connections to Highland Park High School. These were those Pony Express teams back in the old Southwest Conference with Eric Dickerson and Craig James, uh, and a quarterback by the name of Lance McElhaney, who was a, an All-American. And um, Jerry Jones, uh, Clark Hunt, all live in Highland Park, Texas, which is just a suburb of North uh, downtown Dallas. Um, and I didn't know this for a fact, but you know Clark Hunt, the owner of the Kansas City Chiefs, lives in Highland Park now, but he went to a private school, and he didn't attend Highland Park High School. But if you could... If you will, Highland Park is like Mission Hills, and imagine imagine Shawnee Mission East winning not just the state championship in Kansas, mm-hmm. but winning the state championship in Texas. Texas, yeah. And so th- that's a high school in an area with tremendous financial backing. I mean, they you know all their they don't need Metro Sports or Spectrum Sports to get their games on TV. They just put them on themselves. Right. They can they can bankroll that with the car dealerships and the banking presidents that that put them on anyway. Uh, uh, but Frank Beavers later went on to coach at Highland Park High School for a number of years, and a couple of those teams won state titles and certainly contended. But back in my day, I told you i get long-winded, uh, he coached at Mineral Wells High School and coached when I was in junior high, right up until the time I was a junior in high school, and he left and went to Highland Park. But he was in charge, Frank Beavers was, as the head coach of the high school, he was also in charge of all the junior high school sporting programs, certainly football. Mm-hmm. And he instilled uh, what you, if you will, the syllabus or the rundown of how things were done. and what offense you ran, what defense you ran, how many hours a week you could spend on this, that, and the other. And he he basically was the superintendent of the of the athletic system. He was the athletic director in Mineral wells. Yeah. And so absolutely during football, during the fall and the spring, because we'd we'd have drills for six weeks in the spring, this is not just in high school, but in junior high. And then we would have spring football practice, and you'd have a spring game. So it was it was football year-round, yeah. basically. Um, but whenever we did drills, now whether those were push-ups or sit-ups or bench press or clean and jerk or laps or whatever you did, um, you did a set of 10, you did a set of 15, and then you'd rotate a station. And this, this was just highly disciplined, which I love. That's what I was brought up with. And... He knew that this small town in Texas, about a little bit bigger than Leavenworth, even though it had one high school and three junior Mm -hmm. highs, but he knew that we couldn't compete with the premier team in our district, if not the state of Texas, which was Wichita Falls High School. They were the Coyotes. They won three state championships. I take that back. They won six state championships from like 1945 up until 1969. And that was big class. We were in, we were yeah. in the biggest class of, um, of classification for schools. And he would always say, as we were working out or doing drills or whatever, if we're going to compete with that team, we got to work harder than that team. So when you did 10 push-ups or sit-ups or pull-ups or laps or whatever, reps, you not only did your 10, you had to do one more to work harder. You had to do one for the coyotes. Do your 10, but then do one for the coyotes. So we lived with this mantra throughout yeah. the school year, from eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth, eleventh, senior year. Do what you got to do when you're working,
2: when you're doing anything, but also do one for the coyotes. And how does that? How did that play out in your life? In it your played career? out every. I, I
1: never, I never talked about it here. I never talked about it at, at any any stop that I had working television, news, or mm-hmm. sports. But it was, just, it was just my internal engine. It was, part of, it was part of my work DNA, part of my work ethic. And I didn't, my wife knew. I told mm-hmm, her, mm-hmm. you know, on those days where you tell your, you know, I, I know that I was off the air at 1030, but I'm not home till midnight because I had to stay up. I had to get this video out to the guy in L.A. or whatever. Or mm-hmm. I had to do this. Or I had to do that. I had to do this late night to make my tomorrow run better, you know, th- so it was always one for the co- – I had to stay and do a little bit extra. Every time I did something here at work, yeah. coming in on my day off or, or staying late or whatever, right. putting in that little extra work to try to make things better. You remember as much as anybody, 2012, the All-Star game, the mm-hmm. work, this entire newsroom here at Fox 4 right. and WDAF, the, the work we put in to make that broadcast and mm-hmm. those three or four days of baseball right. in Kansas City and broadcasting – as good as they could be, I
2: lived one for the coyotes. One for the coyotes. That's, yeah. that's where. It came and, from. and I think a lot of other people did not knowing that phrase, but they did because they <laughs> watched you and how hard you worked. And and for those of you who don't have the benefit of knowing this, Al was the coach who laid out the syllabus for our coverage. Here's what we need to, because let's face it, Al, you and I have been, over time, there are people who don't follow sports. They don't understand what an all-star game meant to Kansas City. And then, of course, it would manifest itself ultimately in playoffs and World Series. And you were always right out front saying, hey, gang, this is big. This is huge, especially since our television station had the games. 1985, uh, the Royals win the World
1: Series. And up until July of 2012, that was the most important baseball game in Kansas City's history. Yeah. Up until then. It, in fact, that night, that All-Star night, that was the most important sporting event on the planet. So I had gone to our news director at the time, Brian Magruder, and our assistant news director, George Mills, a year before that, in the summer of 2011, and I said, we need to form... A an all star committee, and 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 Brian said, "Hey man, go for it." And you remember, I do. We we met about once a month Mm -hmm. for six months, and then we met about once a we once every two or three weeks during January, Mm -hmm. February, March. But by the by April first, we met once a week, and then uh, three weeks before the game, we met once a day. We went we met every day, Monday through Friday, because our that all star committee. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it grew. You know, we were probably seven, eight yeah. people on it uh, at first, but after that, it just grew, and everyone was involved. Yeah. It was such, it was such a joy to see the teamwork that we yeah. had here to, to pull off that broadcast, because that was the most important sporting event
2: on the planet that night. And what we didn't realize at the time, with the playbook you helped lay out, the committee helped lay out, it would be put into play again. <laughs> just two years later, you know what, uh, and and we that, were ready. That's an excellent point because it just didn't
1: take much to get off the no. cobwebs, if any, uh, when it came to post-game coverage. Most of when it came we're all to playoff here. coverage, yeah. and then World Series coverage, not one year, but two years in a row. Yeah. It was almost it wasn't second nature because it was it was such a huge animal. Right, it was such a different animal. Yeah, those games mattered, and they mattered to Kansas City how much sleep did we did everybody well, that, lose during that time? that <laughs> west that
2: west coast swing when we were doing morning show hits and it was 2 hour time difference it was a little better when we went east to new york yes. because you know uh-huh. you got to sleep in a little bit but uh, amazing amazing time now that one for the coyotes mantra played out not only in your in your family life in your career but it also prepared you for a battle that i'm grateful for you sharing that battle publicly, because you and I are brothers in, in spirit here, as are a couple of other folks at this television station, and that was the news you received about prostate cancer. Um,
1: yes, and I was diagnosed with prostate cancer in November of 2011, and um, the, the one thing about uh, cancer that made it so, so different in trying to... Uh, Accept it, and trying to um, deal with it, work against it, is that cancer has a mind of its own. And certainly, if you don't uh, detect it early, the earlier the detection, the higher mm-hmm. rate of success in defeating it. Uh, but cancer has a mind of its own. I mean, this it's, you can't control it. Uh, you know, to a large extent. So, you know, in some 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 people are. Diagnosed with cancer, and it doesn't matter how hard they work against it. Uh, you may prolong its inevitability, but sometimes that's it, and that's one of the bad things about cancer. So it was, it was, uh, it was an opponent that I'd never faced before. Usually, you, I can, we can all get by some opponents, <laughs> whether it's a, a stack of papers or a yard that needs mowing or a cause that we're behind. You can get, you can get through it and succeed against it with a lot of hard work and determination. Cancer ain't that way. A lot of times it's just not that way, but you know, putting in the effort, extra effort and, and, and work and, um, knowing what you're up against, uh, that had a, that had a large part with me getting through what I had, but the best, the best weapon I had was early detection just, yes. and, and, and I knew that cancer, um, I knew that I was highly, I would be highly susceptible to, can- to cancer. Both my mom's parents died of cancer. My mother died of cancer. I have four sisters. They they were all at one point in time in their lives diagnosed with cancer. I've got three brothers, and none of them so far, thank goodness, have been diagnosed. It could always come back in within me, but you know, I got through it. And one, the biggest reason why is because of the early detection. And I, I, I just, I never really felt like my life. Was gonna be threatened, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was cancer, and you just you you don't know right. unless you you arm yourselves with the knowledgeable tools yeah.
2: of what you have and how to how to get past it and how to defeat it. And it is cancer. You can say we caught this early, and yes, it's a very treatable cancer. They say that more men die with prostate cancer than from it. That's mm-hmm. kind of the mantra. But you you have a couple passages you want to share. This you talk to your children about it.
1: Well. Um, In chapter, I want to say, 13 in the book, One for the Coyotes, um, I I start the chapter, and the chapter is mostly about a neighbor, a very good friend of mine who lost his life to cancer, brain cancer, Rob Mullen. And um, knowing that your neighbor has cancer uh, for as long as he did, and we became very close to the Mullen family, uh, but my kids uh, grew up with their kids. And so they knew the toll that it had taken on that family. And so when I was diagnosed, me and my wife decided to, uh, to not tell our kids until we absolutely had to. I was, di- I was diagnosed the week before, the week after Thanksgiving in 2011. And um, we had decided upon surgery on, on February 4th, 2012. And so we didn't tell my kids until late January 2012. There was no reason to tell them. Yeah, right. you know, So they'd worry another two months. That, that to us, just uh, seemed unnecessary. But uh, we did tell them the week uh, prior to um, my surgery. Surgery was on a Thursday morning. We told them Saturday night. So we go to dinner. And one of the most difficult things I've ever done. And we go to dinner, Applebee's two for 20, you know? <laughs> sure. <laughs> local, local. Um, and I'm going to read here two, two paragraphs from the book. Okay. Okay, page 142. One for the coyotes. And I'm, 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 I'm talking about uh, my two daughters. They were both very familiar with Rob Mullen's fight against cancer and what the entire Mullen family was going through right across the street. They knew Rob's diagnosis and prognosis. So when I told them I had cancer, they both kind of sat there, stunned we were able to tell them that my cancer was totally different from Rob's and my prognosis was different. Chase immediately got up and went to the basement. That's my oldest daughter, Chase. At the time, she is 16 years old, back in 2011. To this day, neither one of the girls really likes going down to the finished basement by themselves. My man came in my office or down in the basement. When they were little girls, they often thought, and we often joked, that there was a strange man living in my office down there. It helped me keep the kids away from the office. <laughs> yes. It was kind of my office off limits. On that night, there was no fear of a stranger in my office for Chase. Her father had cancer. And uh, there's more to that story. And I'm going to, you know, beg people to buy the book, read the book. Yeah. And 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 actually that night wound up uh, with a big smile on its face because uh, – an event happened later that evening that made us all kind of take it all in perspective and to know that, uh, you know, life's got to go yeah. on one way or the other. Right. And so uh, the not- we kind of laughed at the end of that night, but that was a difficult night uh, trying to, you know, having to tell my kids, right. you know, that I had cancer.
2: Uh, obviously, good outcomes for you, um, and you've been very willing to share it publicly, uh, which I think is terrific. And particularly because prostate cancer is a real killer in the African American community, as you know, uh, and men just we don't yeah. we don't care we don't we don't want to talk about our health, do we? Oh, we're, Women we're do, we men are we're yeah. Tough. We got this, and yeah. so thank you, thank you for sharing that as part of the book.
1: Um, you know, that was John. That was uh, that was February, late January, February of two thousand twelve. And think about it. Uh, less than a month later, Kansas and Missouri would play their last basketball game at Allen Fieldhouse. Missouri had already decided to leave the Big Twelve and head to the SEC. And I was I was away from work for a month, uh, recuperating and recovering from from surgery uh, to remove the cancer from my body. I did no chemo, no no uh, radiation, and so I was fortunate there. But um, that last. Kansas-Missouri basketball game. This all, in some way, shape, or form, kind of takes me back to Kansas basketball, and that's why it's such a prevalent part of this book. Um, That last basketball game was Saturday, February 25th. But during my entire uh, bout with cancer, I kept the diary. I keep everything. And so here's my entry. This is also in the book. Here's my entry uh, into my diary on Thursday, February 23rd. Maybe it's something you have to go through to fully appreciate the doctor calling you and telling you he had bad news and good news. The bad news is you have cancer. The good news is we caught it early and the choice chances of survival are about 90%. After a lot of research and numerous consultations, we decided February 2nd, was the date for surgery not the fourth february 2nd don't worry dr thrasher said you'll be back in plenty of time for march madness i then thought there is a god <laughs> the madness this year starts a bit early while the annual border war game between kansas and missouri at allen field house and lawrence is set for saturday this will be the final on-campus regular season meeting between the two schools with no other meeting scheduled at any time soon Missouri's headed to the SEC, and Kansas wants no part of the relationship after the divorce. Kansas also wants to clinch at least a share of its eighth straight Big 12 regular season championship with a win. There's a lot on the line, and if you think I'm going to miss it, you're nuts. Not even cancer can keep me away from the field house. No way. And it didn't. And it did. You were there. My first day back. Yeah, that's awesome. Eight straight. What That streak went to 14. It did, didn't
0: Isn't it? Isn't that yeah. nuts? Yeah, yeah. Eight, wow. eight straight.
2: <laughs> that, Way back. That puts the timeline in perspective. <laughs> well, again, I, I thank you for being so public and honest about that, because I think we guys do need to talk about it. And uh, I just think that's so critical, that, it's that other men, you have brothers, I have brothers, you start with them and you work out, and you just say, guys, get checked, because it can save your life. The, end of the God, day. it just doesn't take any time. It doesn't. All right, I want to, uh, The time is flying here and fleeting, and I, I, I wanted to have a little fun here with you at the end here okay. as we wrap this up. All right. And we'll focus now a little bit on your, on your TV career mm-hmm. as a sports storyteller. So yes. this is kind of a lightning round. Okay. So give me a, I'm, I'm going to channel my inner Chris I'm Wallace here on, Boy, on Fox News Sunday. Let me get some cobwebs <laughs> <laughs> these, these are not hard. Um, best memory in your 40-year TV career. Best memory? Are you talking day? Are you talking time? Could be a story, could be a,
1: a time, could be a. My, my best memory was working under and with Frank Bowl at this TV station and, and, and all the people, all the guys mm-hmm. that were basically in that sports department, the sports department here, but working under Frank, Frank Bowl. Yeah. Those were the best years.
2: Great guy, legend, and
1: I get it. And we laughed. Every single
2: day, <laughs> exactly. A lot of days were tougher than others, yeah. but but we found a way to laugh. So that moves me on to my next lightning round question. Biggest challenge in your sports career? Um, biggest challenge. I,
1: I would say. I would say uh, when I moved to Dallas in 2000, <laughs> 2000 when I moved to Dallas in nineteen eighty nine. And I became the executive producer for a sports department that had eight people. When I left WDAF Fox mm-hmm. Four, we had two people, two guys in sports, mm-hmm. and um, I was I was executive producer sports. We had an eight man sports department: uh, four on air, two photographers, two producers, and and trying to. <laughs> I was I worked. My first day at work came one month after Jerry Jones. Bought the Cowboys, and Jimmy Johnson became head coach. And trying to wrap our heads in, in, in coverage mm-hmm. of Jimmy and Jerry from day one, their first training camp in Thousand Oaks, wow. California, that was huge. And it happened at the same time, if you will. I attended, and I was credentialed for, the first game that SMU came back from the death penalty back in 1989. I attended that game. That Saturday night game at B Stadium on the campus of SMU took place. That game, SMU played UConn won the game with basically a bunch of high school players because their their roster had been decimated. Lightning round, I'm getting all elaborate. But on that same night, that Saturday night, the Dallas Cowboys preseason started, and that was Jimmy Johnson's first preseason game as head coach oh of the Dallas lot. Cowboys. And we televised that game at the NBC station I worked at in Dallas. We televised that game. But I, I covered, I was the reporter who covered, I was a producer, but I also reported, but I cover the, 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 the SMU game back from death. A cheerleader on that team, that SMU team, was Shelly Lockhart, a former Fox, Fox 4, 4 WDAF yes. anchor. Yes, how about that? With Phil Witt, Shelly Lockhart, small world. Yes, she wow. was an SMU cheerleader. Toughest story. Uh, no doubt about it, the death of Derek Thomas. That I, was, I wondered if
2: that would be it. Yeah, that yeah. was tough. Yeah. yeah, third and
1: long. Yeah. Uh, one of the books, one of the chapters in the book. Third and long, All Derek right. Thomas. We're not supposed to have favorites, but he was mine. Yeah.
2: We'll leave it at that. They can read that chapter. I saw yeah. that. Finally, what's next? That, uh, that's maybe a broader, not a lightning round question, but in a nutshell, what, what's ahead for Al Wallace? Well, immediately, what you're is, not the retiring type. No. I know. Uh, immediately,
1: what is next is uh, is promoting and selling this book. And if you don't mind me saying... uh, there, there is something next, but I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I can say it in the public right now, not publicly. You and I have talked privately about it. Yep. I've told you, yep. but I, I don't feel, uh, just, just not yet. Okay. Fair enough. And, um, I, I will t- I'll tell you this, this coming Friday, and we're taping this, what's today? The 8th? This is Monday. Yeah. Monday, the 8th, yeah. Yeah. July 8th. I'm going to be on Fox fours morning show, 9am 9 9 yes. Friday. Okay. And so hope maybe by Friday,
2: maybe by okay. Friday. You, you know, can break that news, then. Yeah, uh, yeah. it is exciting. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But you also have a book signing this coming Saturday, yes. July thirteenth, Barnes and Noble, Leewood Town Center, yes, one to four uh, from one to four,
1: and uh, the book is published by Outskirts Press, and therefore it's got nationwide uh, distribution. And uh, so I'll also be at the Barnes and Noble at Independence Commons on Saturday, August third. I'll be at Zona Rosa on Saturday, August tenth. And and uh, the last week of Sept of uh, July, I'm going to be in my hometown of Mineral Wells, Texas. Very cool. Doing some book signings. That's awesome. How about that?
2: That's great. That's great. Well, <laughs> congratulations on the book. I'm I'm enjoying it myself right now, and uh, it's got a great lesson. I think we started out by saying this is not a book about necessarily just TV news. It's, it's bigger than that. And there are lessons that you've learned that you're sharing. And I think that's uh, that's I, I, I say, a to say I
1: want to say one more thing here at the end. I maybe should have said this at the beginning. This is not a book about Fox 4. No. This is a book about my time at WDAF-TV. And I don't, I don't think I mentioned two current employees, three, yourself, Don Proctor, and Scott DeJong. Scott DeJong was my photographer yeah. in 1988 when Ku made that run, Danny in the Miracle. Yes,
2: yes. And uh,
1: but uh, it, this is not a book about Fox Four. This is a book about me.
2: Well, I uh, and a lot to a lot of lessons to be learned. One for the Coyotes, and I, and I must say I'm quite pleased that yes, I am in the book, page 159, <laughs> 159 yeah, you with know Abby what? Eden. You know what?
1: That's one of the uh, John Holt, Al Wallace, and Abigail Eden. Right. When, when we did the the the, the Royal uh, Celebration parade, the parade after the World Series in 2015. Yeah. That was as that was as uh, gratifying and pleasing a live broadcast as I've ever done. Yeah, as I've For, ever on done on so
2: many levels. Oh, just so
1: many just levels. To to watch and feel and experience the celebration that was Kansas mm-hmm. City, mm-hmm. and that fifteen minute line that I had to wait in to use a porta potty. <laughs> right. I mean, that's how many people yeah. eight hundred thousand down near yeah. Crown Center and uh, um,
2: Union Station. So many, we couldn't even get back to do our 5 no. o'clock news. We just stayed and did it live down there. And Why not, right? <laughs> it, it's, it's, it was, we had waited oh, 30-some years. What so a blast. Was. Now you look back yeah. on it, you say, man, what a blast. Right, right. What a blast. Well, congratulations on the book. We'll be in touch. You're Always. not going anywhere. Always. My good friend Al Wallace joining us today on uh, Signal Hill. Again, signing uh, book signing this Saturday, July 13th, Barnes & Noble, Leewood town center plaza from one to four come by and say hi to al wallace that's it for me i'm john holt have a great day
0: ah really nice catching up with big al wallace and hearing about his new book one for the coyotes hey remember folks we've got all kinds of podcasts here on the fox 4kc platform mark's got one abby's got one kim and shannon have one about dating there's also crime files And we also have Joe's Weather World. And you can find all of our podcasts, the whole variety of them, on Apple, on Google Play, on Spotify, and on Stitcher. You also can find them on our website, fox4kc.com slash podcast. They're all right there for you to enjoy. And one of the easiest ways to follow uh, the Fox 4 podcast and to be notified when a new one downloads is to go onto Facebook and like our podcast page, fox 4 Podcast, Real simple, Fox 4 Podcast. I'm putting my finger up right on the like button and like it. See, and then you'll be notified whenever there is a new podcast out there. I'm Nick Vassos. Thanks for listening to Signal Hill.